I don't know if you realize this or not, but what I've put on the screen is very true. Few issues are more divisive in churches than the worship service. Just think about it. The length of the service, too short, usually too long. The type of music, the style of the music, what elements are included in the service or not included in the service? Do we pray? Do we read Scripture? Is there a sermon? Is there communion? How do we do the offering? And how does each of those elements happen? Dress. Not so much what we wear, but especially the people up in front and what they wear. Well, also what people wear. <laughs> do we stand or sit? How long do we stand? How long do we sit? How do we pray? How do we sing? The sermon, how long is it? What kind of sermon is it? Too much teaching, too many stories, and on and on. The temperature in the room. The lighting in the room. I think we all need to thank Carrie for living in that world. He's very gracious about it, but he has a target on his front and his back. Because if he goes one way, he gets shot at from that side, and if he goes another, he does an excellent job, as the elders have asked him to do in a multi-generational church, of finding that middle ground. Of course, middle ground means both sides aren't happy. And I don't say all this because we have a problem with worship in this church. I don't think we do in general. But it is a very divisive topic and it always has been. And that's really why I bring it up. Because the church in Corinth was facing the exact same issues. They were having what I've labeled worship wars. And in fact, what was going on in the worship service and the opinions about it were in many ways tearing the church apart. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to look at actually 11 and 14. But we'll look at several passages in there. But in, in verse 17 of 11 is sort of a summary of what Paul says. In the following directives, which is all about their worship service, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings, and he means worship, for your worship services do more harm than good. Wow, that's a pretty big indictment, isn't it? For the Apostle Paul, the relative authority, says your worship services do more harm than they do good. Well, what was going on? Well, Paul proceeds to write for four chapters. 11, 12, 13, and 14 are really all about issues that were going on in their worship services, problems things they were doing wrong, and how it was harming the church. I, let, let me just sort of summarize what's in those four chapters. Uh, some of the women were dressing inappropriately in the service when they were praying and prophesying in the service. The Lord's Supper, communion, had become divisive and harmful to each other in the service and how they were doing it. Spiritual gifts were being overemphasized as a badge of 
courage as a badge of who was more spiritual. And so there was real competition and comparing of spiritual gifts because everybody was trying to be the most spiritual. The way they were using their gifts was actually destroying the unity in the congregation. There were prophets and tongue speakers that were out of control in the service, so much so that the worship services were chaos. And the wives were disrupting the worship service in how they were talking to their husbands. That's not a bad list. Paul takes four chapters to look at all of those issues, all coming out of their worship services. Well, what we're going to do is actually do a two-part sermon series within Corinthians. We're going to look at those four chapters this Sunday and next. And I have to confess to you, the, the closer I got to this Sunday, I thought, Jim, you idiot. Because we're going to try and tackle three of those subjects today. And it's too much, I, I, I admit that. But it was either that or we're going to have to do a multi-week study and dig real deep. So I'm going to try and keep this at sort of the 5,000 foot level. And look at the big perspective on each of those issues. And next week we're going to focus more on the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts and how, what was going on there and how it was sort of out of control and why. And what Paul said must be your priorities. So we're going to look at that next week. But this week we want to look at some of those practical issues of how women are to dress and the communion service and, and wives disrupting the service. So let's jump in and go to the first one, um, how the women were dressed when they prayed before the congregation. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and read uh, chapter 11, verses 3 through 6. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Now, this passage and the passage we're going to look at later in chapter 14 has created problems and struggles for people to understand for a long time. And... Um, I didn't realize all that. I, first of all, grew up as a man in the church, so I didn't really worry about these passages about what women had on their head. And then um, I made a big choice in my life. Um, to do a Master of Divinity, at least at the seminary I went to, you had to write a Master's Thesis. And I had just had a class on New Testament backgrounds and the book of 1 Corinthians and was fascinated by how the backgrounds helped understand Scripture. So, in writing a master's thesis, I had always been warned, pick something interesting, not boring. I had a friend write a thesis on Isaiah's use of the Hebrew word, the. I mean, that was, I, boy, you couldn't go to sleep at night over that one. So I decided, you know, that's right, I need to write something interesting. 
And so I pretty naively said, an examination of 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 30, through 36, the place of women in the early Christian assemblies. And proceeded to write my master's thesis on that. Um, probably 10 years later, I went back to the seminary in the library and says, you realize your thesis is more checked out than any other thesis? Not that theses are checked out, believe me. <laughs> Uh, that could have been a number 10. The only reason I show that to you is I spent a boatload of time, about a year and a half, trying to dig out these four chapters. And there is a lot of background that we need to know. If you think about it, we're trying to read what Paul wrote over 2,000 years ago in a different language to an entirely different culture that we know a little bit about, but not a lot. And that's the challenge because we read these verses. Women shall have their head covered. And it's, it's a natural instinct for all of us to say, oh, we know what that means. I mean, we know what a woman is, and we know what a cover on the head is. Put something on your head. And there are churches today, maybe you've attended some, maybe you grew up in some, that women in the service have to have a cloth, a, a napkin, something on their head. Because they read that and said, we know what that means. It's simple. The problem is that when you make those assumptions that our culture today is the same as the culture 2,000 years ago in ancient Greece, you can make mistakes. It's, you make assumptions that may not be accurate. And so one of the core principles of interpreting the Bible is that you have to first say, what did Paul mean for the church in Corinth in 60 A.D.? When they read this letter, what did it say to them? That's the most accurate way to interpret Scripture. What did the original author mean to the original readers? And that takes some digging. And it especially takes digging in the, two, the three passages we're going to look at today. And so let me talk for just a little bit about some of the terms in this passage we just read, and then we'll go back and say, what was Paul really meaning? One of the first things that we need to understand is the Greek had one word for women and wives. Same word. So if you read, if you hear Paul talk about in how the NIV translates it, women, your assumption is he was speaking to all women. The problem is you don't know that. Because had he also been speaking to all wives, he would have used the exact same word. And so the only way you can interpret and say which was Paul probably speaking to is you have to look at the context. Is it wives or is it women? Because it was the same word. And you're not doing wrong to say, I think this was written to the wives, not all females. The second thing is head covering. What did that even mean? We know what it means to us today. But what did it mean in 60 A.D. in Corinth? Well, it had an entirely different meaning. What it meant in Corinth was it is a way that a woman showed that she was now married. She was not available. And so if she was married, she wore her head covered. If she was unmarried, she did not cover her hair. So now what Paul is talking about is 
probably the wives, because this wouldn't be an issue for the single women, the bigger group, but it would be an issue for the wives. Were the wives coming to the worship service, were they standing up and praying and prophesying as if they were not married? Were they taking off their head coverings? Because what, that's what it meant. The only way I've, I've tried to think for years, how do we compare that today? And the biggest thing I could say is, Wives taking off their wedding rings, where they're coming to the service, and they're married, but they take off their wedding rings. Now, we really don't notice if somebody's got their wedding ring. I can stand here and pray, and you'll not know if I have my wedding ring on. But what they were doing was very intentional. And so it would be like sticking with the wedding rings. Before they pray or prophesy, they raise their hand and say, look, I got my ring off. They may not say anything, but they wave their hand to let you know they've taken off their wedding ring. Well, I understand that sounds a little goofy, but remember what we've said before. Corinth was in a situation where this dualism was going on and people were trying to say, I'm really spiritual and I have nothing to do with the physical anymore. And so one of the ways that played out is they would say, I have nothing to do with marriage, that physical aspect of life and my relationship. And so one of the ways they could say that I'm not involved in my physical marriage anymore is to take off their head covering, which would, of course, insult their husband who's sitting right in the room. And that's why Paul talks about you are being disrespectful to that head, that husband. And God clearly has a principle that we need to be respectful to our spouse both ways, wives to their husbands. And I think we would all start to feel a little bit in our emotions if we realize my wife's going to stand up and pray, take off her wedding ring and stand up and want to make sure everybody knows that before she prays or prophesies. That is probably what was going on. The shaved heads that Paul talks about, that was a, a punishment for women. If they did something very immoral, whatever, they got their heads shaved. So basically, Paul's saying, if you, if you want to really be radical and, and not respectful and whatever, why don't you just go all the way and shave your heads? And of course, everybody's reaction would be, well, I don't want to do that. And then he'd say, well, then you wise, put that covering on your head and act like you're married, because you are married. And don't be disrespectful to your husbands. The one other thing that's interesting is the word head. And this is another one where I'll stretch you for a bit. But most of us, if we ask, if I ask you, what does head mean to you in this passage? Most of us would say, well, that's got to do with authority. It doesn't. And the reason I can say that, why do we say that? We say that because we have medical knowledge of the role of the head over the body. The head controls the body, the mind. We understand all of that medically. That knowledge did not exist in ancient Greece. If you read the writings in ancient Greece, they thought the control of the body was down here. Because where do you feel it when stuff's going on? Down here. They saw the head, they used the head 
like we do occasionally, what is the beginning of a river? The head of the river. We can use that. We don't use it a lot, but it exists in English. Source. That's how Greece saw head, as source. Who is the source of Christ? God. Who is the source of woman? Man. What body did he come out of? What rib? So man is the source of woman. God is the source of Christ. Christ is the source of us, the creator. And so we're being disrespectful to the source. It wasn't about authority. It was about being respectful to, those, to that one which you've come from. So Paul's message to those wives, and that's the principle, it's not about literally a head covering as much as being respectful to that spouse and not behaving in some way that harms another because I want to show how spiritual I am. We're going to see that throughout these four chapters. We're going to see it next week. The Corinthians were very much into proving how spiritual they were and they wanted to show it by their gifts and how they performed in the worship service, how they dressed and showed that I'm enlightened and I'm not involved in physical marriage anymore. All of this was to prove, look how spiritual I am. And of course, Paul comes along constantly and says, we are called to serve. We are called to love with agape love that says, how can I help you? Even if it costs me, I will put me second to love you first. Those are the principles that Paul says need to guide us. And he says, you wives who are standing up and dishonoring your husbands, you are not acting out of love. Knock it off. That takes us to the next one. And that is how the Lord's Supper, which was often called in the first century the love feast, had become very unloving. Let's read verses 20 through 22. So then, when you come together... It is not the Lord's Supper you eat. That's sort of Paul's conclusion because of their behavior. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So how, how the Lord's Supper communion was happening was being totally unloving. Now what I said uh, in the title here, it was called the love feast, the agape meal. It was very different than we do communion. I think the early Christians would look at us and say, what are you guys doing? If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. How was the first communion service? It was on a Thursday night in an upper room at a meal. And during the meal, took, Jesus took a cup, blessed it, passed it around. He took a piece of bread, broke it, passed it around at different times during the meal. And the first Christians were all Jewish. They all were familiar with the Passover, and they're saying, perfect sense. So after Jesus is gone, they keep doing it. What? the exact same way. And so what the communion service, the Lord's Supper, the agape feast was, was a literal meal. 
and the Christians got together, and there were no church kitchens. I don't know if that's good news or bad news to some of you, but there were no church kitchens. So they had potlucks. Isn't that awesome? First century potlucks. Except it was a service. It was, you know, not just relax and eat food. But so everybody brought food. And they would share that food together. And at set times during the meal, they'd stop and sing. Someone would read some teaching, some scripture. Someone else would have a message to give. And they would take bread and they would break it and they would eat it. And they'd eat some more and they'd take a cup and they'd bless it and they'd pass it and they'd all take from it. And that was their communion service. It was this meal. But you had a problem in Corinth. It was probably the most diverse church that we have in the New Testament. And you had masters and slave owners and people who were very wealthy and successful. You had the poor working class who didn't have much. And you had slaves who by definition could own nothing. And if they brought food from the master's home, they were guilty of stealing. So they came to the love feast with absolutely nothing. And you had some with a little bit, and you had some with a lot. But what Paul says is, what an opportunity for you to love each other. And what are you doing? Those of you who have a lot, you're just going ahead and eating. And you don't even care if some on the other side of the room are looking at you like, oh gosh, I sure could, oh, oh, that looks really good. You don't even care. And they're going hungry. And Paul's sarcasm in this is, if you're starving to eat and you can't wait, eat at home first so you're not so hungry. Because what you're doing when this is a feast to celebrate Christ's sacrificial love for others all you're focused on is yourselves. And I brought a really good hot dish today, and I'm digging in. And they would just go right ahead and eat, not worrying one minute about the people on the other side of the room who were going hungry. So Paul goes after them. Let's... Um, Oh, I didn't put it on the screen. Go back to 11. I want to read 27 through 30 because that's where Paul challenges them in how to fix this. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. So what they were doing in how they were partaking in this very unloving, very selfish way, he said, you're not just sinning against the other brothers and sisters on the other side of the room who have nothing, you're actually sinning against Christ, the very Christ who gave his body and his blood. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. Now I want to stop there for a second and give you a whole different way to read verse 29. Uh, this is not original with me. I've always been a f thankful for the professor who opened this passage for me. I think what Paul is challenging us to do there, discern the body of Christ. Uh, a, a very equal translation would be evaluate the body of Christ. But don't assume he's talking about the communion emblems. 
If you hear the picture of what's going on and the divisiveness of the church, he is what I believe he's saying is before you partake, you need to be evaluating the body of Christ, the church, the congregation, the assembly. And how is what you're doing impacting the body, the church? And if you're eating selfishly and consuming all of the food and not caring about the poor in the other side of the room, then what you're doing is damaging the body of Christ, the assembly, the fellowship. And that will bring judgment on yourself. You need to stop and before you eat, pass the food to those who have none. The conclusion is in verse 30, because of this uncaring behavior, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. And he's talking spiritually. Because you all aren't caring about each other. You're seeing your spiritual life for yourself. And you're not thinking about the others. So, at least a new way to look at it, it fits within that whole issue of worship and how they were treating each other, these four chapters. Now let's go to the easy one. How wives are to act during the worship service. Verses 34 and 35. Women shall remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Okay, some of the things we said earlier, I, I think it's fairly easy to conclude that this passage was written to wives and not to all women. And the obvious reason to say that is Paul's corrective is to ask your husband at home. So if he was speaking to all women, for a lot of women, that wouldn't even apply. There is no husband at home. And again, because the word can mean either one equally, I think the passage was written to wives. And it was to wives who were asking questions. Paul says that very clearly. Remember that women were forbidden to learn. Education was not allowed across the board. And so, women, in a sense, if there was teaching going on, if there were things happening in the service, they had questions. But the other thing you need to understand, if we had a question here, you had a question, you might elbow a husband and say, what? 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 They, what? they didn't sit together. That's part of the problem. Based on the synagogue, the early church followed that example, and the men sat in one section the women either sat in the back, sometimes they sat on the side, sometimes they sat in a balcony. But they did not sit together. There's a few traditions still today who practice that, who follow that practice. And so if a wife had a question for her husband, which is what Paul is talking about, they had to basically yell it across the room. Now, that might be a tinge disruptive. Now, you need to understand, and we're going to talk about more of this n next week. Um, our service and the service in Corinth in the first century were pretty different. Um, the, the early church, especially in Corinth and what was going on there, was pretty chaotic. 
We'll just call it that. A lot of people were exercising spiritual gifts, including prophecy, speaking in tongues, and there was just a lot going on in the service. I guarantee you they did not hand out a program. There probably wasn't even an order of the worship service, and it was pretty free-flowing. So it was more noisy than what you would picture. Right now, if some wife over here yelled to a husband over here, we'd all go, you know, and just stop in shock. That wasn't that much of a shock in the Corinthian worship service, but it was still clearly disruptive. And Paul basically says, you are disrupting the service, don't do that. The word he uses here for talking is a word that focuses on the, not the content, but almost the delivery. Just sort of this talking that doesn't say anything, but it's, you know, just a lot of talking. We know people who do that, some more than others. There's a lot of talking, but not a lot being said. That's the word Paul uses here. And so he says, this is going on. You're doing a lot of talking. You're making a lot of noise. But you're disrupting the service, so you need to be silent. Now, some interpret that as if women shouldn't say anything in the, in the worship service, and I understand that. And that may be some of your views, and I'm giving you my understanding, and I hope we can be brother or brother and sister in Christ and disagree on this, and I fully give you that permission. But there are three groups in these four chapters that Paul says, be silent. He tells the tongue speakers to be silent. We'll look at that next week. He, talks the, he tells the prophets to be silent. We'll look at that. And he tells the wives who are yelling across the room, be silent. Now, in none of those cases, or if we look at the other two, the tongue speakers and the prophets, he doesn't tell them don't talk at all. He gives some guidelines about how they use tongues, how they use prophecy, but he's not saying total silence. He's saying, you need to tone it down. You need to be quiet in the sense of being respectful and not disruptive in the service. Well, why should we understand his word to the wives to be any different? They need to be respectful. They need to be quiet, which fits. If you take that total silence of 1 Corinthians 14, then how do you interpret 11, the first issue we talked about today. Because when the wives were having their heads uncovered, Paul could have easily said, I know, you know you're not even supposed to stand up and talk because women aren't supposed to say anything in the service. But Paul doesn't say that. What he says is when you're going to stand up and talk, you're going to prophesy, you're going to pray in the service, make sure your head's covered. Be dressed appropriately. But he doesn't condemn them for getting up and speaking in the service. So if you take 14 to be all women to say nothing in the service, how do you fit those two together? But if it is in fact these wives who were trying to in some ways prove how spiritual they were, because I've got a deep question. Husband, what do you think of what he just said? Is that true or not? I think it's wrong. Again, it's that same selfishness, promoting myself at the cost of my husband, at the cost of the service. And Paul has no problem saying to wives or tongue speakers, 
or prophets, if you're going to do this for yourself, sit down and shut up. If you want to do it to build up the body, have at it. If it's at the Spirit's direction, if it's in order and decent and not chaotic, that's how God is. But if it's about self and if it's going to disrupt, stop it. It doesn't fit in God's church. Paul had some clear priorities. Unity, we're going to see a lot of that next week in the gifts and how they work in the church. But as I said earlier, agape love. How can I help you? How can I build you up? And if that means I give up something, if that means I serve you, if that means you eat first and I don't get to eat, that's agape love. And that's how Jesus loved us. And that's how we need to pass on his love, by loving the same way. That's his call. And we've looked at three of the areas that he applied those principles. He says in verse 26, everything must be done so that the church may be built up. That is one of Paul's priorities. And that's a principle that we can bring today. We may disagree on a head covering or whatever else, but that principle is crystal clear. And that remains true for us in 2019. What we do is to build up the church, each other, love each other, just as Christ loved us. I told several people I was extremely nervous about this sermon because my intent is not to create controversy. But I, we agreed to go through 1 Corinthians and it's in there. And so we needed to talk about it. If it has helped you in any way, bring some new understanding, then I'm thrilled and honored to help. Um, that is my prayer for this service, this sermon. That we seek God and understand what he wrote a long time ago by some inspired people. And that truth is still for us today. Will you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word. Um, I, I thank you for those who've done the research to help us understand what was going on 2,000 years ago in a different culture. And I ask for your help and love as we try and understand scriptures and sometimes don't agree. But we all agree that Jesus is our Lord and your word is our guide. And we ask for your help as we wrestle to understand it. But Father, I ask your help especially that in the details we might disagree about, we never lose sight of the core principles that Paul kept coming back to again and again our love for each other in the church. Meaning we serve, we sacrifice, we do whatever we can to help the others. Even if it costs us like it costs Christ. And that we see the importance of the unity in the church, loving each other, working together with each other, being patient with each other, trying to understand each other, use our gifts for the good of others, Father, help us understand those principles and may they guide our lives 
as we live in your church today. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Especially next week, we will see that there was a lot going on in the early church that was going on in other religions. There was one thing that was unique about Christianity, and that was the man named Jesus Christ. The Son of God who had come to earth, died on a cross, risen from the grave, and that he invites us to be his children. That was what was unique about Christianity. It wasn't the worship service. It wasn't a lot of other things. It was Jesus. And so every Sunday, we want to let people know, if you want to know more about Jesus, what it means to have him as your Savior, Lord of your life, that he wants to, to take all your sins away. We want you to come up and talk to Joe and Nancy, who will be up here after the service, one of our associate ministers. Please come talk to them. It's, he is what makes all the difference. Um, if there's something else going on in your life and you'd like some prayer, please come to our prayer room right around that wall. There's Some of the prayer team would love to pray with you, bring God's power into your life, the situation that you're wrestling with. And if you have enjoyed this service and you'd like to know more about this church, please mark that connection card and put it in one of the boxes. Um, we have a great God who's amazing. May you live this week very aware of his presence with you out there, not just in here. Would you stand, please?